Welcome to the Investing for Life podcast, where we apply proven investment principles to the lives of successful business people to help you enrich your own. With your host, Douglas Isles. I'm delighted today to be joined by Rear Admiral Lee Goddard, an executive leader who has experienced many careers within a career. He continues to serve as a Royal Australian Navy Active Reserve Officer following 34 years full-time service until 2021. He has proven achievement in complex leadership, command, industry and management roles across the commercial and philanthropy sectors, defence and a range of Australian government agencies. So Lee, thank you for joining us today. We have often holidayed in the same place with our families. Uh, we tend to talk looking out at the ocean and, and that's where I want to start today. I want to start with your love of the sea. I want to unpick that. Yeah, thanks. Uh, well, thanks, Doug. Thanks for in, inviting me to join you. And as you uh, alluded to your audience, uh, without mutual appreciation, and and uh, it's been great to have got to know you and your family over many years down at the beach. Look, um, I am a boy from the suburbs of Melbourne, and I joined the Navy at 17. I did do a lot of sailing on, on Port Phillip, but really it was a bit of escapism. You know, always loved the ocean, and I wanted to, um, yeah, some ways escape that suburban life, and I and I wanted to explore the globe, and and I uh, and I'd grown up with the stories of those great explorers of the world. So that was one thing, and then of course, like most Australians, you know, uh, seeing a sunset or sunrise in the ocean, it's just pretty inspiring. So interesting that you you wanted to escape from something, or you just wanted to escape from, let's say, the banality of um, suburban life. Yeah, look, and I, I probably should be a bit careful. Certainly wasn't escaping my parents or family or friends. I, I had a fantastic childhood in Glen Waverley in Melbourne, but I knew there was a much bigger world out there. And, and to see that world, I was going to have to travel the oceans. And uh, I think in the, the mid-'80s, movies like Top Gun and Officer of the Gentleman and I said stories of our navigators that inspired me uh, to go see that bigger world and, and the Navy and the, and the sea was was the platform that I chose. So it was a platform you could have chosen to be, I mean, an air student or something, an air steward, or do you think it was really, there was more, more to it than that? Actually, I, I think it could have been, you know, the merchant Navy or other ways or, or to travel overseas. But in 1986, when I was doing my uh, HSC, a, a bunch of boys went down to uh, Station Pier and, a young man, it could have been a young woman, but came down the gangway of a warship and he was dressed in a uniform, spoke well, had been around the world and was probably the most together person that I'd met in my life at that time. And I think about 30 of us went, I want to be just like him and, and we essentially signed up to join the Navy. And lo and behold, today you're probably just like him. Um, oh, I'd like to think so because it was a pretty inspiring moment, especially uh, at that point in time when you're 17 and you're still, you know, you're still looking for heroes and looking for people to be like. So what the podcast explores is um, is setbacks that people face and, and how they respond to them. And I I can only imagine the kind of setbacks or, or challenges that you, you might have faced at sea. So maybe we could just sort of talk through a couple of examples of, of, of that, of, of some of the more challenging moments um, that you experienced in your career. Yeah, thanks, Doug. And you know, I, I have the privilege to often talk about leadership and I'll come back to that. But I often start with when I've failed as a leader rather than when perhaps I've succeeded because it helps us to balance up. Look, when you're at sea, things can go wrong. Yeah. Simple yeah. as that. You know, you're, you're subject to 
the environment and your your adversaries is probably not the enemy. It's yeah. actually the sea itself. It's a very challenging environment. You've always got to be aware that um, many of those risks that you predict often get realised, yeah. and when they do get realised, it's uh, it's it's very tough. So I've certainly. Uh, been on the ocean and um, not only as a Navy person, of course, I'm, I'm the chair of and director of the Sydney Hobart Yacht Race and yeah. obviously do a lot of uh, yeah, offshore sailing from time to time as well. Uh, it makes you very resilient and, and it, you know, you've got to have real grit because, um, yeah, the, uh, you, know, this, uh, you, you predict a risk and, and when you're in the middle of the ocean that risk is realised, you have nothing else to you can do except for just face the reality of the situation. It's interesting in some of those really tough situations, um, people that I probably on first appearances, I haven't rated that highly, I've done extremely well, and people I thought would do very well have not done so well. Or or, or you can tell the situation's not going so well at sea because those who normally talk a lot, shut up. Yes. (laughs) And those who normally don't say much start talking and you realise that. Either as a leader or an individual as part of a team, yeah. it ain't going well. So how do you actually start reacting, responding, yeah. you know, showing leadership and actually you know, to, to make sure that you take control of the situation that you're facing? So that's, there's a couple of things that, that, that I find interesting with, amongst that. One, one of that is that idea that, that it's almost the first impressions of someone. It's, again, one of the biases we face when we're investing is we judge things often on the, the first impression. So when you're recruiting, um, the guy who talks well often – gets himself into the job. Um, those are really sort of interesting just to think of some of these dynamics as you've, as you've built teams um, or you've worked with teams in that sort of tense situation. I was um, very fortunate early in my career to uh, be on board the Young Endeavour, Australia's right. national tool ship. And yeah. I found um, uh, it's very stereotypical between young men and young women and how they would behave. And I found that young men have this fear of showing fear. So they don't, they'll, they'll be brave, but if it looks like it's not going so well, they don't want to you know, show fear to others. Yeah. In some of the toughest situations we had, so in the middle of Bass Strait yeah. and you'd be in this big tall ship and you'd have to go to the top of the mast and pull up sails, yeah. I often found those brave young men all of a sudden disappear, the 19, 20-year-olds, at the top of the mast, it would be young females with me pulling it up, yeah. and they'd be looking at me. And basically, they had no fear of showing fear. Yes. They trusted my leadership. If I was going to do it, I was, they were with me as well. And it was just often not, you know, often on both sides of the yard arm, yeah. it would be young females actually who were up there you know, pulling up the sails. And it really was a good lesson for me because I just assumed that these tough young men would be the first ones up. It was often the tough young women who were up there first. So that assumption, and I think, you know, as we just spoke about, um, Often bravado, talking, etc., masks other issues, and uh, you know, until you're really faced with a really stressful situation or a challenging situation, or or dealing with the situation as is versus what you want it to be, yeah. you can't really, you know, uh, really see the character of an individual. And certainly at sea, you see it. Yeah. Now, as I say, worse things happen at sea because bad things do happen at sea. Yeah. So the interesting thing again, then, from that idea of what that sort of perfect embodiment of the of the military person is and we we think of bravery and so on i guess we don't think of bravado we think of i guess it's the way someone projects themselves but it isn't a, a showy form of um projection it is and and i've 
been very privileged again to, to meet a lot of people during my military career. And I've, I was with some special forces um, soldiers this week and, and they wouldn't mind saying, say the SAS regiment, uh, for my experience, the best SAS type soldiers are the ones who look at a wall and don't work out how to smash through it and et cetera. They work out how to watch it for a while and gently go around it in the most calmest, quietest way. And you realise that's the kind of character and competence that you're actually looking in those individuals. That's yes. what makes the perfect special forces soldier. Yeah. So you see that in individuals. You, know, you don't want the person who's you know, bravado and is going to smash through. Yeah. You're looking for different kind of qualities. Yeah. So, again, sort of linking it back to investing, we often, you know, risk management is very important. We have this sense that um, we can't predict the future, but we can, I guess we can work out if something is a, a reasonable price for, let's say, a range of outcomes. Something you said earlier on, which, which really interested me, was that some of the most terrifying things at sea are when the thing you predicted might happen actually happens. Mm -hmm. And that's very different from my perspective, which was that you were going to tell me that it was the most unpredictable things that you hadn't thought about. So can you just sort of talk me through that sort of preparation um, um, yeah, and getting ready for these, for these situations? Well, coming from the camera environment, the number of times I've been disappointed in the system where a risk is realised and everyone goes, what do we do now? Yeah. I think, well, we've actually talked about this risk. We've yes. talked that it could actually happen. Yeah. So let's start doing the things we said we would do. Yeah. And that's like straight away go to how did this happen? Yeah. It actually has happened and you have to deal with it. As uh, you know, Matt Damon said when he was on Mars, <laughs> problems come up, the risks have been realised, just start dealing with it. So yeah. I think that's the first thing. Um, yeah, look, and I talked about probably predictable risks, yes. but of course you have to have um, a mindset of a whole lot of things can occur which you just can't see. You think may occur, and of course, on a bigger scale, the black swan might be a pandemic yeah. or a COVID. Um, but the number of things, so the number of times I've um, uh, I've not been surprised by being surprised, yes, and I've, you've got to actually remind yourself of that. Um, it goes, um, say at sea, and I could show you a picture of a big rolling cigar, cigar cloud coming over Bass Strait, yeah. and you never know. It's be beautiful but never admiring it for too long because yes. you just don't know what's going to happen behind it, yeah. and it doesn't matter what you're modelling. And, of course, with weather, yeah. weather's, you know, all the, you know, for all those uh, students out there thinking, when am I going to use permutations and combinations and all this kind of mathematical kind of, you know, yeah. You know, and in fact, the Navy used sine, cos, and tan, actually. If oh, you right. think you're never going to use it, you actually use it all the time. But those permutations, of course, that's the weather as well. It, yeah. yeah, You think it's going to go away, but there's always a probability it's going to go a completely different way as well. Yeah, I'm helping my daughter with her uh, trigonometry at the moment, so maybe I'll, uh, I'll, I'll tell her about that. So so I see it's interesting you've briefly mentioned black swans and, and you mentioned COVID. I mean, should that have been – or it shouldn't have been a surprise that we had a pandemic, yet we behaved – collectively like it was the biggest shock the world had ever seen. How, how, how did you think about that as a, someone who's used to dealing with surprises and on what you said, you know, the things? Yeah, look, I think with pandemics, we shouldn't have been surprised. It's you know, been through, through human history and you know, often, uh, for example, I'd often even so with climate at the moment, people are saying, well, you know, we'll just adapt, it'll be okay. It doesn't matter how good the science is, yeah. you know, nature will change, the world will change and some of the things you predict are going to occur. 
bit of a cliche, but history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Yes. And yeah. it's almost uncanny 100 years ago during you know, the Spanish flu pandemic and what actually happened during the 1920s and what's yeah. happening now during the 2020s. It's unparalleled. It's actually, it's it's very similar, almost at times, et cetera, as well. So, so um, uh, in my last formal military role, I was commanding Maritime Border Command and I was commanding Operations Sovereign Borders. And of course, not only was it, I guess, military threats, but non-traditional threats and and civilian type threats to uh, narcotics and, you know, to be frank, things like people smuggling or, or, you know, people interfering with our exclusive economic zones. But we had probably 10 priorities. Priority 10 by country mild was biosecurity threats to Australia. Right. So, of course, in, in literally overnight, in reverse, yeah. became priority number one. Yes, because so, we always had we So always we had priority one, two, and three, which are miles ahead of priority five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Yeah. Biosecurity, we're thinking about yeah. swine flu in, I don't know, Torres Strait. All of a sudden, human biosecurity yeah. became the number one issue. And that's that's a reality. And, again, you just deal with it. And that and, and the human element of, of um, you, you touched briefly on people smuggling, we We've talked about that in a more social context. It's actually a it's a topic which is let's say politicised. It's 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 seen as a, a aggressive almost response. But when you've talked about it to me, it's been very humane. Um, is that something you can sort of share a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we should bring in the human dilemma. But the first thing um, people coming to see to Australia because they want a better life. Yeah. You empathise with that because there's, you know, humanity, you know, but it's so dangerous. And uh, the reality is there's lots and lots of people actually processed, say, United Nations camp who've been waiting for a long time in Australia who deserve to come to Australia. So we need to have uh, legal, uh, controlled ways to get great uh, refugees to Australia because there's no doubt they'll be fantastic Australian citizens. And, you know, that's what this country is about. So, that's me. Well, not yeah. a refugee, but uh, an immigrant. Absolutely, and that's that's great. So I think uh, you know, no one would have more empathy for those humans, and in particular, military or police or border force officers who have to actually deal with the situations. Um, people smuggling is a scourge. Yes, okay? just awful people who deal in tricking humans into thinking they can have a better life, and that better life may mean they die at sea yeah. getting here as well. So we should do everything possible. To prevent that. The reality is that it does occur and then navies or border force, et cetera, then have to deal with that situation. Um, I often talk about challenges in leadership. Um, there is no more challenge. I mean, many of our listeners will be either current serving defence force or first responders, police officers, and they've all had different experiences either on battlefields or emergency situations. Dealing with people at sea at 3 o'clock in the morning, bad conditions, lots of motion, overcrowded boats with small teams whether you're actually on the boat or you're actually sending people that way, it's some of the most uh, stressful, challenging and most focused operations. The reality is that, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder is a whole lot of areas, yeah. but you can only imagine how those young Australians feel. You know, actually you have to go on the, you know, and, and sometimes people end up in the water as well. So a, a very dangerous situation, yeah. but it's got to be done. Therefore, um, in a very humane way, everything we can to prevent people leaving in the first place and coming through controlled, legal, you know, effective ways to get to Australia, no one would be more pleased than me. The, the other final part is um, any threats to Australia, you want to deal as far from Australia as you can. So um, dealing with people smugglers at their source 
obviously has been our primary focus in recent years, not aiming at individuals, but aiming at people smugglers at their source countries. Because you have an, when you touch on someone's in the water, you have an obligation to, under maritime law, to help them. Absolutely. First response to be is safety of human life. Yeah. We'll deal with any regulatory or any legal issues yeah. much later on. It's about saving human life, always has been. Yeah. Even navies. Yeah. Navies actually don't kill each other. Yeah. Basically, a navy kills a warship. As soon as it's killed a warship, normally the first response is then go rescue everyone in the water. So that's a reality and that's the way we have a mindset when we're at sea. When I searched for MH370, I think I mentioned that you know we were with not just obviously US and Malaysian and yeah. British ships, yeah. we were with a lot of Chinese warships and yeah. Coast Guard ships as well. Yeah. Our common adversary wasn't each other. Yeah. It was the sea itself, the challenge, MH370. It really hones you because yeah. you all work together. When I see you on holiday, Lee, I see a man who you know loves spending time with his family. One of the challenges, I suspect, in the Navy is... The amount of time, I mean, you don't you don't go offshore for, for the day from, from nine till five. So um, I think that's something, again, that would be interesting to unpick how you've dealt with that over the years. Yeah, you do spend a lot of time away from, from not just family, but friends. And, um, you know, you know you, your deployments could be six to nine months door to door. So uh, I remember um, when I was um, commanding the surface force or fleet down in Garden Island, uh, a uh, ship had been away for six months, and I think this young child, um, she was only probably about a year and a half years old, so she hadn't seen, I put in perspective, had not seen her father arriving home for six months plus, and probably all she associated with was a uniform. Yes. So I came down to give the speech with a politician, welcome back, and as soon as she saw me in the uniform in front of the whole crowd, she yelled out, Daddy! Thought, oh, my goodness, I'm not her father. So I was asking the question, but that was the association. So, yeah, even the mother was no as well. Um, but, yeah, of course you do. And, and look, from a personal experience, um, you, know, you know, you move around a lot. Obviously, as a military family, you spend a lot of time at sea. Uh, I think my son Dom, who you know well, is now you know, first year university. But when we arrived in Sydney to our our home here, by the time he got into grade six, he was already in his fifth school. You know, he'd been moving around so much, and I'd probably spent you know at least two or three periods away for you know four to six months during his life. So that's that's one thing. And of course, being at sea for six months, sure, you have a different family navy, yeah. but it's actually you know, have lots of good days. Yeah. You have some bad days too. It can be quite lonely, you know. And of course, you know, and and of course, sailors, men and women, will be away for, um, you know, at the most extremes for a birth of a child or or a death of a parent or a or a twenty first birthday of a best mate. It's just what you have to do. So, uh, so you do endure. Um, but then, you know, that's um, you know, uh, uh, people being at sea all through history have been away for a long time. So yes. you ask yourself, am I resilient and tough enough like they are? Yes. And you get over it and you crack on. And you only find out you're resilient and tough enough when you're at, there's nothing to prepare you for, is there? Is there a kid in the suburbs? No, there isn't. I think when you, obviously, when you, uh, say, join, say, the military, or again, and I, I talk about military, there's other, of course, great yes. institutions as well. There's yeah. a whole lot of training and preparation, but you're right, until you're really tested. Um, yeah. I'll just, I'll tell you once, Sad reality is that you can be away to six to eight months and you can arrive back at Garden Island here in Sydney. The warship can come alongside and the most together person, it could be a young lieutenant or a young sailor, we have this um, sad phenomenon after about two or three days after coming home and the welcome home, the excitement, 
your house sailors will go back on board the ship for two days because it's right. just you it's, just become they're just so overcome you know kind of and sometimes it's the the sailor or the officer you'd think would be most together and you know they've got a loving family and I know as a captain I've literally had to go on board after two or three days and say to a so young officer get home almost to shake them and they look at you and say you're right and I've got to go home so that's yeah that's it's that conditioning in fact they've overcorrected yeah and now yeah, it's they- hard to go back to actually being a, a, at home so. right. Can, can I ask a, a silly question? But you know, when I've been sailing for two or three days at a time, you come back on land and you you go to a bathroom, and all of a sudden you think you're swaying all over the place. What happens after six to nine months? Is that after a few beers as well? Or uh, no, just, so, 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 uh, oh, absolutely. You know, um, and certainly if you've been at sea, say for forty, forty-five days yeah. straight, and because your body never really rests at sea, people, even when you're sleeping. It's still continually adjusting, and so uh, you know, going up and down ladders. So, so yes, yeah, certainly, I'd, whether it be a, say a tough four or five day offshore yacht race, yeah. or say forty days at sea straight, it, it does take a while to adjust. In fact, I've got mates as submariners. The first thing they do, first of all, you can imagine how they smell after being on a submarine for thirty days. First thing they want to do, literally, is go smell roses. They want right. to get their sense of smell back. Yeah, yeah. So they kind of stumble around, go look for flowers, just to start smelling things again. Let alone actually trying to, you know, just yeah. just adjust to normal walking, coming back to life, seeing colours, etc. Again. So I want to change tack a bit, and, and the other element of this this podcast is always about changes that people make, and um, you know the long term benefits of them. And I think you know you reached a juncture of thirty four years in the navy, and and now you're doing a whole lot of different things. Um, I guess the, the the first question is really just to sort of. I guess unpick that that process you went through or the decision to change, and then we'll go and um, you know unpick some of the things you're doing now. But I'm really interested in you know what it was that, that that drove the change and how you thought about what you might like to do next. Yeah, look, 34 years is a long time. Until I actually left full time service after 30, I didn't realise how how long it is. And in some ways, you are institutionalised, and I don't say that negatively. I say that that that's a reality. But everybody in any career, whether in particular the military, at some point you do leave, you know, and you make decisions and choices, you follow your gut. Yeah. You, know? you, you don't want to be told to leave yeah. or, or just waiting around or decline gracefully or otherwise. You actually want to be in control of your own decisions. So my decision was made at the age of 50, and I guess um, I realised that if I was going to do something else meaningful, um, I was on the right end edge. Otherwise, I would have stayed in the military in Canberra and, and you know, potentially would have had, had you know, continuing to have a relatively successful career, And but I wanted to do something different. You know, I was on the right end edge to do something different and commence Act 2, whatever that may be. Of course, you go back to your own purpose statement, whatever it may be, and you know, I've, we've all written purpose statements. But if I just summarise, my mind was you know, service, adventure, and being part of high-performing teams. So for me, that just guided my next decision. And and even though they say you should never have made a big career decision during COVID lockdown, I actually did. (laughs) And that was to join, of course, uh, Nicola and Andrew Forrest's philanthropy, the Mindaroo Foundation. Another part of that, I actually had been in Canberra commuting literally Monday to Friday uh, for just over four years, and that's not untypical of you know, as a government and military. And, you know, at some stage, no disrespect to Canberra, but yeah. you have to pay penance after you know doing all these exciting things on warships and adventure. You then become part of a more wider government system. I wanted to return home to Sydney. Wanted to do some sailing. Yeah. Wanted to spend more time with family, and I did want to do something different. And yes. Mindaroo Foundation 
offered that opportunity, both from a, an impact philanthropy, but also from a corporate perspective as well. It'll be interesting just to sort of, you know, talk about what you're doing for them and, and I guess what they're trying to achieve. Yeah. Look, um, impact philanthropy is about wealthy individuals or families coming to the conclusion that they can make a difference. They can make a big difference by not giving away their money, but directing it to good people who can make impact, make it fast on focused areas. So in, in you know, in Nicola and Andrew Forrest's case, there's, there's 10 initiatives that they're focusing their resources, their money effort, and they've signed up to the Bill Gates and, and Warren Buffett and Rocker Family Pledge to Give, where those billionaires have uh, committed to give all bar, I think it's bar $100 million during their lifetime away. A, a living wage for their children. A living wage, et cetera. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and then they're obviously value-driven. Yeah. And, you know, billionaires generally are billionaires because they don't like giving their money away. So if yes. they're going to give it away, they want to make sure it's to people who really can make a difference. So that's yes. that's their concept of impact philanthropy. Um, and, of course, it often finds gaps in the systems and accelerates impact in those gaps. And, you know, we know some of the things that Bill Gates has done. I mean, you know, big part of the system that eradicated polio, for example, yeah. in education. Minru Foundation, you know, I've let Nicola and Andrew Forrest tell their story, but, of course, famously, you know, 20-plus years ago, they were in pretty tough times. Yeah. They had a lot of success, of course, with their entrepreneurial and investments in yeah. Fortescue Metal Group. But they actually, from my experience with Nicola yeah. and Andrew Forrest, they're just as proud, if not more, about selling the Mindaroo Foundation. It was initially focused on Generation One, which really focuses on Indigenous employment and modern slavery, and then it broadened out. There, I've been focused on has primarily been in disaster resilience, adaptation, joyous technology, flourishing landscapes, and also, of course, flourishing oceans, oceans, plastics, oceans, etc., as well. Um, and working not just with the best Australians, but also globally, and, and working with a wide ecosystem, not not just philanthropy, and but governments at all levels, uh, corporations, innovative systems, other philanthropies, and getting the best people together to solve these really challenging uh, problems of our time. And it's bringing you back to some of your passions, which is which is fantastic. There's a there's an interesting irony that I sort of pick up because because you have worked for 34 years in in, in the military, which is let's say funded by by the state, and um, I think the mentality of a lot of the successful business people is they can fund things better than the state. So how, how do you deal with that irony, if you like, at, at the state? Yeah, look, and it took me a while to adjust. It's interesting during um, my time in the military, I'd go to a Senate inquiry. I'd probably never got criticised for actually maybe. Either spending money, or wasting money, but not spending the money I was given. Yeah, yeah. So uh, hey, come on, spend just it. come on. Let's. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it's a different kind of a mindset. Yeah. And then, of course, as I said, impact philanthropy, the big ones, the most effective ones, are run like a corporate. You know, you're held to account for yeah. uh, not only the money that you spend, how you spend it, and the money you don't spend, yeah. the opportunity that's lost. So, so it's actually yeah, it's it's reset myself as well. It's even my world now with um, working with Defence Post Orcus. Yes. What I'm trying to encourage government in a respectful way now that I've been able to observe the system is yeah. take one hand off the wheel. Yeah. Yeah. Take, don't take both hands off the wheel, yeah. but take, you know, because industry and innovators and industrialists can sort themselves out. Sure, government has a role, yeah. a big role, yeah. but just take one hand off the wheel. Um, another thing you're doing today is um, you were the race director for Sydney to Hobart. So, marry again a passion with a, uh, with, with a, a purpose. Um, maybe you can just talk about that. It sounds like a lot of fun. It is. Look, I, you know, I, I did my first Hobart in the early 90s and I think a, 
it was best described then as a hell of a way to get to a good party. And yeah. I think, uh, you know, it's, um, it's, a, it's a pretty gritty um, sport, you know, and you really are facing the elements. And, um, and again, those who compete in the Sydney Hobart Yacht Race, they actually are elite sportsmen, but they don't necessarily look like elite sportsmen yeah. because uh, um, I'd suggest if you're going to ask um, someone to join your crew, you ask three questions in a row. The first question is, are you fit? If you've got grit, if you've got endurance? Everyone says yes. Yeah, they'd say yes. Second <laughs> one is, do you get seasick? And the third one is, by the way, can you sail? Right. Because the first two are probably the critical you know, qualities you actually need, yeah. you know, you know, toughness and endurance. And you're right, everyone probably says yes until they're actually tested. And then if you're seasick, really chronically seasick, you can actually be, well, not a liability, but you yeah. certainly aren't going to contribute in the way you would like to be. So. Yeah, look, at, yeah, it's been a real privilege to be amongst that community and see the personalities of offshore sailing and and to understand firsthand their conditions. I mean, I'm not, you know, um, so, you know there's, there's some Australians and, and international regular visitors have done 25, 30, 35 races. Yeah. You know, they give up all this time you know, leading up to Christmas to the race and, and um, I'm sure a lot of them actually every time they do it after a day, they go, oh, my goodness, what am I doing this for again? And then a year later, they just can't wait to get back into it. So, uh no, that's been – and then, of course, now being director and chairman, you know, you um, of course, only you want to have the fastest and fairest race possible, which is kind of, you know, has the right regulation and let people get out there. And, of course, you also want to make sure it's the safest. It has to be fair, has to be fast, yeah. but it has to be safe. And, of course, um, when things go wrong, yep. just like it since in a Hobart Yacht Race. Yes. So like, like in the Navy, yeah. they can go really wrong. So you need to make sure you, again, you understand all the scenarios, all the risks, and you're prepared. I I um, I was in a couple of tough races in the 90s. I yeah. wasn't there for the 98. Had a lot of friends who were, had a lot of friends who were enjoying the rescue. And, of course, a bit like the Fastnet races in the uh, late 70s, that 98 race was you know, storm, you know, storm cell of the century and really did take out you know, the whole system. So now you get to fly to the party, which is which is good, but you also have to deal with adjudication. So there's, it's not always what they say, smooth sailing in the uh, Sydney Hobart. Yeah, look, and, and of course this last race, um, you know, it was well known that you know there was a protest, um, and uh, through an international jury, which of course as the race director I had to facilitate, um, a decision was made, which resulted in, in the first not. Not the fifth and sixth place or the tenth and twelfth place, but the first and second place being reversed. And that's tough because um, the on-water, I guess, winner, but subject to the protest, then was obviously reversed to second. And, and that crew and team sailed magnificently, you know, and, um, and really well. That said, the team that came second and went uh, on the water and then was reversed first did the same thing again. But, you know, leadership... These are the calls you have to make. You know, that's that's a reality. Not everything goes as planned and yeah. you can't wish it away. So, again, we just had to deal with the situation. It was a particularly yeah. tough about this year because yeah. of very tough conditions, a lot of withdrawals, only 50% of the fleet uh, didn't make it because of, you know, breakage of equipment, some serious injuries, COVID precautions, and then, of course, a, a protest which revolved in a serious, you know, a decision by an international jury. But, you know, it, it was... I didn't find it stressful. I just found it, you know, it's, in fact, the opposite. I probably was back in my element again yeah. because you make decisions. You yes. make hard decisions and you know sometimes not everyone's going to like those decisions, but they've got to be made. But I guess a protest is a predictable 
outcome Absolutely. and therefore you've role played it and you you've kind of some of the, one of the things that you've planned for another thing you sort of touch on that you that you're doing today is and I, I like this sort of phrase of mutual mentoring mm. so can you just talk a little bit about what it is that that you're bringing to that and what you're trying to get from that as well i guess that's i assume what the the mutual side of it is yeah look i, I kind of thrive on that and in fact this week um they had a big the biggest poly defense exhibition at darling harbour is called indopac and, yeah. and it's not just defense and politicians and defense industry and gun runners or whatever people are perceived it's actually a lot of innovation, a lot of technologies, and in my, my, I'm most proud. It's some great international innovation, but uh, I had the pleasure to walk around with two or three university students, you know, aeronautical engineers, yeah. who are just brilliant people. I sat there, fa fantastic sailors. I sailed with some of them, but these are, you know, these are going to be the leaders of our future. But to walk around the floor, they think I'm mentoring them, and we're chatting about leadership and options. They don't realise how much they're mentoring me. They're, you know. Um, um, how I'm talking, I have to repeat myself, what really catches their interest, what yeah. doesn't, uh, what they're doing, what they're focused on. So that, that would be one example in terms of, you know, the kind of age difference mutual mentoring. Um, all through my career, though, I've tend to, um, you know, I've had some fantastic defence leaders who've yeah. mentored me, but I've also had some great business leaders, corporate leaders, charity leaders too as well. And it's always been an arrangement that it has to be mutual, yes. you know, that we're both getting, you know, he or she. In fact, most of my mentors at the moment are actually uh, women. I'm finding, uh, because I, I've, I'm finding at this time of my life, my mess, most precious commodity is my time and I'm yes. not managing it as well as I could. I might be doing too much. I'm finding some great female leaders are actually uh, much better at mentoring me and, and I'm, I'm providing some advice to them yes. about how to, to say no to things right. and manage my time. They're just much better at it yes. than, than I've experienced it. So, yeah, and I think they've asked me to do, you know, to, to talk about some of their leadership challenges, some of their mentoring challenges, et cetera, as well. Well, so yeah, uh, look, and, and, and I think I've mentioned to you before, Doug. It's, it's said it's not just been military. Really. I've had some fantastic uh, leaders from other parts of the system as well. Like you know, I had a CEO of Foxtel. We yeah. we would often go walk and talk with each other, and it's ironic. He wouldn't, you know, people might work out who I'm talking about, but would yeah. work out. Everyone would assume he was a macro manager and I'd be a micro manager because I was military. We're actually opposite. Yeah, you know, he found out I was very macro, giving people space and time. He was very micro and in the details of managing. So, so you we come just together. Come yeah. together and actually understand why we're like that. So. That's interesting. Look, we've learned a lot about your journey. Um we've learned a lot about your approach to life. I just sort of want to wrap up by by thinking about you like that that purpose you sort of touched on your on your purpose statement earlier but um you know i know from from knowing you, you you've got strong values um maybe you can just sort of wrap up by how would you describe yourself or or how do you how do you want to be looked up to by your children for example yeah look well first of all i was reminded this week i saw a couple of um military leaders and and um I realized uh, the two or three that I really admired, I don't really know what they achieved in the end, but what I actually do remember is how they achieved it. So I think if I would be most proud as a leader is would people remember how I achieved things rather than what I achieved, and even with my family as well, that would be the most important. Just with values, I often get asked about you know, values and, in fact, um, I've just been talking to a, a junior officer who's thinking about getting out of the Navy and I'd say, well, the three things you've got to really think about, one is what are your values, what do you really believe in, et cetera, yeah. you, you, know, you won't compromise on because you are, where you'll add the most value, you make the most impact, and yeah. where you'll be most valued. So that's, that's the three values with. But in terms of actually 
my values itself, yeah. you, know, you alluded to it. It's, it's always been about family. It's always been about service. It's always been about adventure. Yeah. And it's always been about being part of high-performing teams. Yes. And I've had the privilege to lead them, but I've also been, had the privilege to be part of them. Yeah. And in fact, when I do talk about leadership, I always talk about leading, yeah. managing, mentoring, but also being able to follow and showing people how to follow as well. So, so that's one other value that I've always been really proud of that I think I've been a pretty good leader during my life. Yes. I've actually been a pretty good mentor. I've actually been a good follower too yeah. when I've needed to as well. So I think that's really important. And I think, you know, that, so get back to that service, adventure, being part of high-performing teams yeah. and uh, only, you know, as I said, I think only people should, if they're going to judge me, is on how I achieve things and how I am as a family person. I think that really has guided me. And I've seen you as a family person, so I think that's a, I, I can pass a positive judgment, and I hope you know the listeners have enjoyed uh, hearing your story. Thank you very much for joining me. Been thoroughly enjoyable. Thanks, Doug. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for listening to the Investing for Life podcast. If you like what you hear, please remember to subscribe and share with your friends. For show notes from today's conversation, head to platinum.com.au.